The Corbett Report is brought to you by the 2010 Video Archive DVD. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this 22nd day of March 2013. Welcome to episode 263 of The Corbett Report podcast, Remembering Splitting the Sky. It was with great sadness that we learned earlier this week of the passing of another articulate spokesman for truth and impassioned campaigner and activist, John Boncourt, a.k.a. Splitting the Sky, who some of you might remember from his previous appearances here on The Corbett Report. For those who don't know about Splitting the Sky or don't know in detail, it is, of course, extremely, exceptionally difficult to try to encapsulate, let alone memorialize, a life so enriched with such interesting experiences as Splitting the Skies was in a humble little podcast like this, but that is the task that we have set before us today, so let's attempt to do that. And to commence in that task, why don't we start by turning to an article that was posted on, of all things, the Vancouver Suns website earlier this week under the headline, Native Peace Activist John Boncourt Found Dead. Quote, His native name was Dakajawea, or Splitting the Sky, and it was a name that John Boncourt took to heart through his lifetime of political activism. Boncourt, 61, was found dead last week on a path on the Adams Lake Indian Reserve near his home in Chase near Salmon Arm. He is believed to have fallen on cement steps, and may have suffered a blow to the head. Also known as John Hill or Dak, Boncourt will be remembered as a man who stood up for all that he saw as tyranny and injustice. He principally shouted from the ramparts for native peoples, and made headlines four years ago as the man who was charged after trying to make a citizen's arrest of U.S. President George W. Bush on a visit to Calgary. At age 19, he landed in Attica prison, notorious for brutality and overcrowding. There he became the leader of the bloodiest prison revolt in U.S. history in 1971. Forty-three people were killed, with 29 inmates and 10 hostages shot during the retaking of the prison by authorities. Boncourt was sentenced to another 20 years, and narrowly escaped execution over the death of a prison guard, and survived several assassination attempts on the inside before being pardoned in 1979. He continued his activism in the U.S., and was active in the anti-nuclear and American Indian movements in the 1980s and 90s. In 1993, Boncourt was invited to a conference in Edmonton to speak about Native American sovereignty. It was there that he met Cree woman Sandra Bruderer, whom he married. Boncourt is survived by Bruderer, six children, and five grandchildren. End quote. Well, as I say, that is really only the bare-bones biographical details of John Boncourt's life, and of course do not do justice to the man himself. And in order to flesh out the, the mere skeleton of that article, I think today, rather than concentrating on third-party sources, we should turn to the life and the writing and the words of the man himself. So why don't we start by highlighting an incident that is probably one of the ones which he is best known for in recent years, And that was his attempt at a citizen's arrest of George W. Bush during Bush's first speaking engagement overseas after leaving office in March 2009, where he appeared in Calgary to give a presentation and, splitting the sky, attempted to crash the party. Where former U.S. President George Bush was speaking at a paid event. While luncheon attendees entered the convention center today, protesters gathered outside. And shortly after noon, police arrested four people for a number of reasons. One threw a shoe at the building. He got arrested. One spit on a police officer. Others were arrested for trying to get inside the building. You have done what we have asked you as Eventually, it came down to splitting the sky, confronting the police guarding the TELUS Convention Center, essentially saying, well now, will you arrest George W. Bush? Will you do your job? Will you enforce the rule of law? And no doubt they were under orders to protect the group inside the convention center, including the former U.S. President George W. Bush, uh, from the demonstrations, from the protesters. 
so by the time the police were addressed by the splitting the sky and then uh, made it clear to him that they had no intention of arresting George W. Bush, he, he informed them that he would, he would do that. He would uh, conduct a citizen's arrest. And he did break through police lines and he was slammed down into the into the ground. He's 57 years old. He was flipped over like a pancake. Uh, handcuffs were put on him and uh, after he regained his wind and after he stood up he declared very clearly arrest George Bush not me. Arrest George Bush not me. Uh, if you go to the tapes and see what the what the people were saying, the protesters were saying, they were saying, uh, arrest George Bush, do your job, pointing at the police, do your job. Now, for those of you who don't know the rest of that story, it ended up turning into a protracted legal battle for Splitting the Sky, who had to face criminal charges for the grave offense of attempting to arrest war criminal George W. Bush in the face of the complete abdication of those responsibilities from the Calgary Police Force. And that came to a head in a Canadian courtroom in June 2010, where he was handed a conditional discharge, conditional on one year of probation, and an order to pay $1,000 to a charity of his choosing. And during the sentencing, Splitting the Sky said that if the $1,000 fine was his punishment for, quote, trying to apprehend a war criminal of the Bush administration and possibly stop torture and murder, then bring it on, end quote. And the icing on this particular cake is that the charity that he chose to donate his $1,000 to ended up being Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. So it can definitely not be said of Splitting the Sky that he was an activist who only talked the talk. He most assuredly walked the walk and he lived the life. And I think we have to keep that planted squarely in the forefront of our minds when we are looking back at the words, the actions, and the life of Splitting the Sky. So let's turn back to this issue of the war criminality of the Bush administration and the war criminals who have never been held accountable for their blatant, blatantly uh, criminal actions during their tenure of power in the White House. And this was a topic which Splitting the Sky was remained firmly committed to and which he continued to press even after long after it became apparent that the Canadian injustice system was never going to do anything about this. It still was something that he spoke eloquently and passionately about time and again. So let's listen to some of Splitting the Sky's talk about the war criminals Bush and Cheney. I had the chance to interview Splitting the Sky earlier this week about these attempts to bring George W. Bush to justice and what the failure of the Government of Canada to act says about Canada's role in international relations. Um, uh, when George Bush came here with uh, Bill Clinton, uh, we once again uh, had Gail Davison from the Lawyers Against War, and this time we had the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, calling for his arrest. We had the opposition from the NDP party calling for his arrest on Parliament Hill. Uh, we I then found out as we were pressing and all of the work that we've been doing to mobilize over these last couple of years, all of the, uh, and I'm talking about major grassroots organizing, uh, just in May of this year, we were at, uh, at Surrey, B.C. To, to launch the campaign. And we passed out 20,000 flyers, as well as about 1,000 posters posted up all around. And we've been on Facebook uh, to the point uh, between the Lawyers Against War, Gail Davison, Center for Constitutional Rights. We then got a major endorsement from Amnesty International, which put out a call for the arrest of George Bush when he got to Canada. And then we called on some of the people that were tortured uh, by the Bush administration in Guantanamo Bay, and they're now calling for his arrest because they want to sue Bush administration. So, so by this time, we came with hundreds more people showing up in Surrey, B.C., in front of the Sheraton Hotel, 
at this bogus economic conference. Uh, there were hundreds of cops out there, the same military. There was a lot of military snipers up on top of the rooftops, uh, helicopters flying around. Uh, we never did get to see them. Uh, there was a number of people that wanted to break the line, but, uh, you know, and I, and I thought, well, maybe I would have to do it again, but, uh, but you know, it's, you, you can't, you can't do everything all the time. You, 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 I, I set the example and, uh, and, and I gotta let the next wave man take over because certainly if I had done it a second time, uh, the punishment, uh, would be five times more severe than it was. So perhaps you can just speak to what does this say about Canada? Because as I understand it, Canada is one of the only places that Bush and Cheney will dare to visit anymore because um, so many other countries have decided that they will do their duty in, in upholding the, uh, the, the charges for uh, war crimes that are so obvious and have been presented by so many respected lawyers around the world. And of course, uh, we saw Bush cancel a visit to Switzerland last year because he was afraid of being arrested. Yet they travel in and out of Canada with total impunity. What does that mean about Canada and the Canadian government? Well, it, well, 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 what it says is that finally the world no longer sees Canada as a peaceful humanitarian uh, uh, country that we used to be here. Uh, Canada, under, especially under the Harper regime, uh, and, and since uh, uh, post the free trade agreements uh, of the Mulroney era, uh, Canada has, 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 has degraded itself to the point of becoming uh, a serfs, economic serfs of the United States interest, uh, and, and especially the U.S. interest of foreign policies. So the United States is uh, under the Harper regime and basically went gung-ho again, again, under the auspices of fighting terrorism internationally. Uh, uh, the, uh, Canada signed up with the Coalition of the Willing, backed the United States' interest in Iraq, and also backed the U.S. interest in Afghanistan and provided forces, provided uh, 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 the Joint Task Force two uh, special forces to arrest and detain suspected uh, al-Qaeda terrorists and then sent them off to these black sites to be tortured. So Canada is complicit in the war crimes. Another aspect of Splitting the Sky's work for which he will be justly remembered is his 9-11 activism. And again, just like his war criminal activism, he went above and beyond the call of duty and what most activists will do by not only being an articulate and impassioned spokesman for 9-11 truth, but also for connecting dots that few others have, especially when it comes to the money connections behind 9-11 and the 9-11 money trail. This is one of the aspects of 9-11 that I feel has been greatly, greatly neglected by a lot of the 9-11 truth community, and Splitting the Sky has given remarkable talks connecting some of those dots. Was a 9-11 attack a self-inflicted wound to garner sympathy? it makes good sense to follow the money. There are reports of a sharp rise in the credit card transactions which moved through some computer systems at the WTC shortly before the planes hit the Twin Towers. Now the only thing about this, this little blurb here is that they only try to make it look like millions were transacted just prior, minutes before the towers went down. Well the fact of the matter is it was months before that, that billions were accumulated. Not just minutes and millions, but months and billions. Unusually large sums of money, perhaps more than $100 million, were rushed through the computers as the disaster unfolded. More than a couple of years back, this was reported. A world leader in retrieving data, German-based firm Convair is trying to answer questions and help help credit card companies, telecommunications firms, and accountants in New York recover the records from computer hard drives that have been partially damaged by fire, water, and fine dust. The Convair data salvage has made it completely clear that more than $100 million in insider credit card transactions took place in the hours and minutes before the Twin Towers collapsed. The, the, the mainframe computers in the towers pr processed these transactions and the credit card data would have been lost forever ever had, if, it, if it had not been for the successful data reconstruction of the Convair specialists. And this report has been all but forgotten. A German company, Convair of 
Paramecines near the French border was given more than 400 computer hard drives from the wreckage of the World Trade Center. These are extremely sensitive computers components that went through the collapse of the World Trade Center. Using blue laser technology, Convair succeeded in reconstructing all the data from the data computer debris. This includes diverse financial uh, data and telecommunications protocols to a few seconds before the collapse of each tower. The source, uh, they named the source, Convair Germany, on October 16, 2003, the U.S. government blatant lie about the alleged missing black boxes is outrightly made ludicrous by this fact. The reconstructed data was given by Convair to the FBI. The FBI was held by law to investigate based on the reconstructed data who placed the inside transactions. Those, that data from Convair was bought up by Kroll Inc. And Kroll Inc. was bought up by Maurice Greenberg, who was trying to hide his major involvement behind the put option stock tradings on 9-11. Now, there's a guy by the name of Richard Andrew Grove. But there's also, I want to get back here for a second. I want to backtrack here and get another critique. Now, sometimes it's important, it's very important to, to, to critique these profiles of these individuals and these organizations. And one of those organizations that I was just discussing, along with Larry Silverstein, Larry Silverstein put up, uh, put up $14 million, which I believe he got that through Giuliani when Giuliani was mayor. Giuliani was the one that was receiving and that had financed, had paid Silverstein the uh, $16 million a year as rent for the Office of Emergency Management. Now, the Blackstone Group put up $111 million for the World Trade Center leases. The Blackstone Group is basically owned by the Rothschild family. The Blackstone Group, and this, this will come out here, but I also want to make it clear that one of the key players for the Blackstone Group, the Rothschild family, is George Soros. You know who he is. Does anybody not know who George Soros is? All right, well, we'll get to him. But it must be, you must, we have to read this report here because this lays it out who Blackstone Group is and their affiliates. In 1985, Blackstone opened its first small office with a staff of four, including the two founders, Peter G. Peterson and Stephen A. Schwartzman, and a balance sheet of $400,000. Strictly pri uh, friendly private equity investigating, investing in corporate partnerships has been a signature form of investing for the Blackstone Group since 1987 and accounts for 69% of the firm's private equity investments in terms of equity capital invested. The firm invested side by side with 32 corporations and their management teams has invested over $3.5 billion in such partnerships with a total transition value more than $40 billion. Such partnerships have included AT&T, AOL, Time Warner, Six Flags Transaction, United Car Union Carbine, Union Pacific, USS, X, Vinvindi, IBM, BP, Amico, Arthur Anderson, and many others. Blackstone Group and the World and Seven World Trade Center. Blackstone Group Real Estate Advisors, the global real estate investment and management arm of the Blackstone Group, LP, announced today that it had purchased from Teachers Insurance an annuity association to participating mortgage secured by Seven World Trade Center, a commercial office complex controlled by real estate developer Larry Silverstein. But before the building can rise further than the substation, 
Uh, major financing issues have to be resolved by Larry Silverstein, who controls the long-term lease on Seven World Trade Center as well as the World Trade Center complex. The good news for Mr. Silverstein is that the company that issued Seven World Trade Industrial Risk Insurers has indicated that it will make full payment under its $861 million policy. But it's not clear whether Mr. Silverstein can use those proceeds to start building without first reaching an agreement with the mortgage holder on Seven World Trade Center Blackstone Real Estate Advisors. Kissinger McLurty Associates has a strategic alliance with the Blackstone Group. The Blackstone Group describes their relationship thus. Blackstone Alliance with the Kissinger McLarty Associates is designed to help provide financial advisory services to corporations seeking high-level strategic advice. The relationship was announced in 2000 and recently completed its first strategic advisory assignment on behalf of a New York State, uh, New York uh, Securities Exchange listed company. In fact, the alliance also incorporates Maurice Greenberg's American International Group as per this press release on February 21st, 2000. American International Group, AIG, the Blackstone Group, LP, and Kissinger Associates, Inc. announced the establishment of a new venture to provide financial advisory services to corporations seeking high-level independent strategic advice. The venture will operate globally and will take advantage of the existing relationships between the partners. AIG has an interest, has an ownership interest in Blackstone and it is an investor in several of Blackstone's private equity funds. AIG and Blackstone have a group, have a joint venture specializing in restructuring and M&A, which is mergers and acquisitions, advisory services in selected Asian countries. Henry Kissinger chairs both AIG's International Advisory Board and the advisory boards of several AIG-sponsored infrastructure funds. The AIG Blackstone Kissinger Associates Ventures recently completed its first advisory assignment on behalf of a New York State Stock Exchange listed U.S. company. And not, indeed, in 1998, American International Group, AIG, acquired a 7% non-voting interest, non interest in the Blackstone Group for $150 million and committed to invest, invest $1.2 billion in future Blackstone-sponsored funds. And Maurice Greenberg sits on Blackstone's domestic advisory board. Now, all of this activism occurred towards the end of Splitting the Sky's life, but in order to come to a fuller understanding of that life, we have to travel back to the roots, to the origins, to really see where this passionate commitment and energy towards his activism sprang from. And when we do so, we will come up squarely against that defining incident from his youth, where he was sentenced to eight years in, in the New York State penal system for his participation in an attempted robbery. And it was during that sojourn that he was transferred to the Attica State Prison Facility just 16 days before the infamous September 1971 prison riot, which resulted in then-New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller ordering the storming of the prison, resulting in the deaths of 43 people on that day. And it is interesting to note that Splitting the Sky ended up being the only prisoner charged for his role in that uprising and was actually facing possible execution for his participation in an event that led to the death of one of those guards. So it is an extremely important piece of history and an extremely important piece of Splitting the Sky's life, obviously. So who better to tell us about that than Splitting the Sky himself? So let's turn to a uh, presentation that he gave in 2003 to the Portland Break the Chains Political Prisoner Support Forum. This has been recently reposted to YouTube by the YouTube user Philosopher Seed in the last few days since the news of the death of, uh, of Splitting the Sky. 
So I will, of course, as always, post the link to the full video and all of the videos cited in today's episode in the show notes for today's episode. So if you want to see the full presentation, and I suggest you do because he does talk about the entirety of his life during this wide-ranging conversation. But if you want to see that, please go to the show notes and follow the link from there. I have bleeped out the naughty, naughty four-letter words for uh, the squeamish in the audience, and I know that this podcast is also picked up by the next news network and uh, sky tv and and others so i have bleeped out the naughty bits but if you want the full uncensored version please again go and find the the full video in the show notes to, to today's episode so here is splitting the sky in a wide-ranging presentation that he gave in 2003 in portland oregon talking about his experience in the attica state prison riot another set of books was given me to a bro- by another brother. And they were written by George Jackson, a prisoner, a black political prisoner in San Quentin. And in the book, I read Blood in My Eyes. And then I read letters from George Jackson. And that book was going all over the prison population. By this time, there was a great antisocial movement happening. There was the rise of the Black Panther Party. There was the Black Liberation Army, the Puerto Rican Liberation Army, the women's group, the women's movement was getting very powerful. There was the anti-war movement. Before you know it, all of these people were coming in as political prisoners, prisoners of conscience, and they were starting to educate us who didn't know, who didn't understand, and we began to create cells to teach one another what was going on in this world to reconnect ourselves to who we are as human beings. And so after reading George Jackson's books, I was totally inflamed by what he wrote because he spoke to my anger. He spoke to my need to grab that capitalist system like a bull and grab it by the horns and turn it and twist it until you snap its neck. And he was such a powerful motivator in my life. And then one day, we heard that George Jackson had went on a visit. And that the guards in the prison said that George Jackson had a afro. And inside of his afro was a 38 snub nose. And he was plotting to escape with that 38. And so they shot and killed him 19 times. They shot him and murdered George Jackson. At that time, you could not congregate more than three people without getting basically bludgeoned to death for defining an order inside a prison. We decided to just say to hell with that because many of us were given the label of being militants because we were constantly engaging, fighting, and going to solitary confinement and being tortured when we went to solitary confinement. So when this happened to George Jackson, everybody unanimously came out to the yard and we all did a prayer. We put black armbands around our white shirts and we had 10 minutes of silence in prayer unanimously for the spirit and the respect of George Jackson. The guards become unnerved. Two days later, a black man, a white man, We're in the yard scrimmaging for a football game. As they're scrimmaging, a lieutenant comes out with 15 guards and he yells out, lock that nigger up now. And the white guy that was with him said, well, if you lock him up, you're gonna lock me up too. And so the guard, uh, the lieutenant says, well, lock that nigger lover up too. And all of a sudden, when they went to grab this brother by the name of Leroy Dewar, Leroy Dewar punched the lieutenant in the mouth, which was completely unheard of. Because you knew that the second that you hit a guard like that, you were dead. And as soon as he did that, had we not jumped to his defense that very moment, 
he would have been dead. And so would have that brother, white brother, that would have went to the box with him. So I'm sitting there, and I happen to be lifting some weights and seemed to be getting very, very strong, physically fit, and was also, you know, was also uh, uh, learning to box and fight by one of the sparring uh, partners from Muhammad Ali back then who was in jail. But I was going to be a pro fighter. I was going to be a middleweight contender. And so I was fighting golden gloves in the joint. But I was sitting there lifting some weights and pushed the weight up. And just as I was pushing about 240 pounds up on a bench press, all of a sudden this big guy, big Indian guy that was behind me, grabbed me and said, holy shit, did you see that? I said, what? He said, man, that brother man over there just punched that guard in the mouth, that lieutenant in the mouth. I said, whoa. I jumped up. And all of a sudden, just it was almost clockwork. Everybody just ran and got this brother's defense. So there was like this unseen solidarity that had never been seen before. Everybody surrounded the brother. And the lieutenant was there by the name of Maroney, and he said, and you could see he's now visibly shaking and saw all the guards that are with him. And so Lieutenant Maroney says, hey, uh, uh, I give you my, my Eagle Scout honor. We won't lock him up. I jumped through the crowd, slapped him in the face and said, you and your Eagle Scout honor, bunk. <laughs> I was 19 years old and this Italian brother was behind me. He grabbed me and he said, young blood, he called me, eh? He said, man, the motherfuckers will kill you. I said, it, let's go. Let's go. But I slipped through the crowd and everybody was there. And they were just like totally shook. Everybody gets back to the cell, and now they're looking for the people that had been in the fight. They wanted Leroy Dewar, and they wanted the white guy named Ray Lamore. And they were looking for a young guy they had never seen before who looked like a Puerto Rican young lord with pop marks on his face. That's the way the Attica Commission read years down the road. So I'm sitting over there brushing my teeth watching them come, but by this time I had taken two razor blades and a can opener and a piece of wire and just two blades on each side. So if somebody comes and I make my move, you get sliced, you got two gashes to have to deal with, and I'm going to make my final stand because I know they're going to kill me, but somebody's going with me. That was my feeling. Let's get it on. But I'm sitting there, but if I didn't have to, that was cool too. I'm sitting there brushing my teeth. <laughs> sitting there brushing my teeth, and this guy comes down, this big, ugly looking guard, uh, lieutenant. He's standing, he looks in there, and he says, and the guards are looking like this, and they're look, he's looking, and then he goes, mm, no. Right? So he walks on, I said, right? finish brushing my teeth. That night, they came and got those two brothers from another cell block. And all of a sudden, we could hear all of this yelling and screaming going on. And I looked out at night over to the other cell blocks, and I could see the lit up cell block. And I looked, and I could see all these fires and all this noise and cans and stuff being raised. And apparently, they tried to take the brothers out of the cell, and everybody that was in the cell was throwing cans and burning toilet paper and, and paper and everything. And everybody was like saying, we're going to get you in the morning. So the word went, and you know as fast how fast things could travel in the penitentiary. Something happened here today. Tomorrow morning, the whole penitentiary knows. That's the prison grapevine. Next morning, they locked them two brothers up. We figured, hey, they're going to kill them. The word was, you get to the mess hall, and there's a general food fast. Nobody takes food. We got into the mess hall, the, the 1,300 prisoners, the only people that ate that day, that morning, were the diabetics that had to eat. You could see 300 guards around in that mess hall, and you could hear their keys shaking without a sound. You could just hear their rattling. They knew we, like caged animals, had smelt the blood. We smelled their fear. We knew they were afraid their illusions of power and invincibility had just been shattered right before our eyes. And so at that point, we knew we were going to take this place. 
Something was going down. We were walking down the hallway, walking back towards our cell. There was a captain. Usually the doors are unlocked, the gates to go out to the prison yard, to get ready for your assignment for the day, to go somewhere. We went outside. We get outside. Uh, we're ready to go, to go outside to wait for the assignment, but the door was locked. So they were trying to get everybody back into their cells. They were going to lock the prison down. That's what they were going to do and probably shake down for weapons and whatever else. So-called contraband that they could get in there, taking and going through people's properties. There was a brother by the name from the Black Panther Party walked up <clears throat> to the captain as he was coming down in, in cell block number nine, which I was in, and cell block number five, which was the militant, you know, that's where everybody that had the big M, the militant label was housed in cell block five. But our two tiers converged and we were walking down the same hallway and this brother from the Panther Party said, hey, what happened to those two brothers last night? The captain says, well, I, I tell you, I don't know, fellas, but I'll get back to you. The Panther brother said, you're full of <laughs> Boom! Hits him in the jaw. As he's going down, Sam Melville kicks him right in the ribs, cracks his rib. And that's when I turned around and said, take this place now. This is it! The riot! Take Attica now! The jump. That was the spark. We turned around before you know it. It was like that spark to set off that prairie fire Ed was talking about. It was just like a match in a dry field. Before you know it, people who were doing life bids on top of life bids who had never seen the stars for 20 years, 30 years, Everybody was in a rage, and everybody automatically started seizing hostages. And before you, it was unbelievable how many people could move it all at one time so fast, so hard. And in a moment's notice, we were organizing in chaos, mass confusion, but there were people that were coming to the forward. No, get the hostages, take them out to the yard. Seize the materials in the commissary. Get this closing, take the hostages, close off, put them in the inmates' closing so that the enemy doesn't know who they are. And before you know it, they had four gateways, four quarters, four blocks, and at where all gates came together, there was an area that was controlled by the guards on the inside and they had the keys. You couldn't get from one block cell, cell block to the other unless you got through that gate, those four gates. They had the gates locked up. By this time you could hear the siren in the city, the town of Attica, you could hear this loud siren. They knew this was it. The prison was being seized. They lost control. All of a sudden that area, what we, what we call that four corners, we actually call Times Square. But right there at that area had the gate, big iron, cast iron gates that went from maybe here to Ed. And they were all locked. The guards wouldn't give up the keys. So 60 of us from A block kept shaking this one cast iron gate just hoping that it would snap or something, a weld. We ripped the gate out of the wall. The official Attica Commission said it was a defective weld. I'm here to tell you we ripped it right out the wall. The wall came down in that corner. 60 determined people, black, white, yellow, and brown, brought it down. Brought it down. We opened that gate. When that gate went down, it hit one of the guards in the head. And it killed the guy two days later. But they blamed that guard's death on me because I'm the one said, take this place now. So I was charged with this guard's murder. We held the prison for five days, and we set up an elaborate negotiating table. We told the state 
that we demanded that they send in the mass media. For the first time in the history of the New York State or the country's penal system, we were able to force the state and there was a guy by the name of Russell Oz, uh, G. Oswald, who was, the, was the, uh, the head of the New York State prison system and directly answerable only to Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor of New York at that time. For the first time in the history, he conceded to sending CBS in, NBC, ABC, and they came in as well as a number of different evolving cable TV networks came in. And when they came inside the prison, we knew we had won, and the reason we knew we had won, because they could not discredit and smear us and say this, that, and the other without, uh, from a one-sided perspective, but the whole world could see from themselves what we were doing. And here we were, 1,200, almost 1,300 men, beginning to set up an elaborate negotiation with state senators and with, with uh, William Kunstler, a, a civil rights attorney who was coming to represent us. State, State Assemblyman Arthur O. Even, a number of different people, Tom Wicker from the New York Times. Before you know it, we began to negotiate our grievances in the prison system, starting with the sweatshops and the exploitation of the labor of the prisoners. The fact that inmates were not allowed to write home uh, 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 to, 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 to be able to communicate. Spanish prisoners couldn't communicate in Spanish. There was a whole 28, a list of 31 demands, and many of the demands were becoming to seem as if we were engaging in negotiations for reform. Some of us said to hell with reform. We're not trying to make prison conditions better so we can enjoy our oppression. Some of us said to hell with that. First of all, we want amnesty from criminal investigation while we are waiting for helicopters to come and pick up those of us who want transportation to a non-imperialistic country where 17 countries in the world said they would take us. Well, as soon as we threw in that demand, that was it. <laughs> Sadly, once again, we can only begin to scratch the surface of Splitting the Sky's remarkable life in a short podcast like this, and there is much, much more to be said and many more aspects of Splitting the Sky's life that need to be highlighted to come to any sort of understanding of who this man really was and the work that he really did. But hopefully, at the very least, we've been, become acquainted with some of his research and activism, and that motivates the people in the audience to find out more about Splitting the Sky. And when and if you are motivated in that manner, I hope you will go to the Splitting the Sky blog at splittingthesky.blogspot.com, which I will link again in the show notes to today's episode, which was uh, a, a blog that was keeping track of Splitting the Sky's research and activism, his writings, his speeches, etc., and does have a significant archive. So again, I hope you will make use of that resource and use that to explore more fully the life of Splitting the Sky. But sadly, of course, we are here, here to commemorate that life because it did come to such a sudden and tragic end at the much too early and too much too, much too young age of 61. And on that note, of course, with a prominent political activist like Splitting the Sky, we always have to, at the very least, question what was the cause of this death. And at this point, at any rate, we don't have a very clear or very good answer to that question. So I will refer to the Splitting the Sky blog, which posted up this uh, piece on March 20th. We owe it to DAC to be suspicious and to be vigilant. Quote, While it is still early and we do not have many details beyond what was reported in the newspaper, we owe it to Dak and to his family to be suspicious and vigilant, to ask questions and demand answers and accountability, if they are not forthcoming in full detail. Dak said on several occasions over the years, Please, if someone tells you that I died from a slip and fall, don't fall for it. So I must say that I am suspicious of his sudden death in exactly that manner. Boncourt 61 was found dead late last week on a path on the Adams Lake Indian Reserve near his home in Chase near Salmon Arm. He is believed to have fallen on cement steps and may have suffered a blow to the head. Again, 
We don't have all of the details yet, and I do not know what is being done in terms of investigation, but I do know that from spending time with him up there, that he went for long walks by himself every day in quiet and secluded areas around the small town of Chase. That would have been perfect for an ambush had anyone wanted to take him out. Yes, accidents do happen. But, due to his long history of very dedicated activism, during which he always spoke truth to power, confronted tyranny head-on, outed the major global criminals and cabals, and was a constant thorn in their, their side, there is no doubt that he had powerful enemies. While I do not want to accuse anyone of a cover-up, we, the friends, brothers, and sisters of Splitting the Sky and his family, must expect that a proper, full, and public inquiry is conducted, and insist upon accountability for those charged with investigating his untimely death. End quote. And on that very note, let's turn to an audio excerpt from the Jack Blood Show from March 19th, 2013, where he was talking to recent Corbett Report guest Larry Pinkney about the death of Splitting the Sky and the investigation that is currently ongoing into exactly what caused it. Uh, Dakajawea, his um, his Indian name meaning splitting the sky, his colonial name John Boncor Hill from Six Nations, and Boncor actually that's interesting. Um, doesn't that mean good heart? Uh, spelt a little differently if you're in France, but um, literally even his colonial name fit him. <laughs> good heart. He had a wow. big one. That's- 61 yeah, years that, old. He left us on Friday, Larry. Um, and I'm still trying to get the, the, the death cause. It seems very young, and I know he wasn't in the best of health, but still, I mean, the guy was strong as an ox and, uh, and had a willpower and a drive that he should have lived till 90. I've heard a, a rumor, maybe even, that he was hit in the head, that he hit his head, that he fell and hit his head, and that they, I guess there's not going to be any kind of investigation here into foul play, and I hate to suggest it if it's not true, but... But how do we know how he died? Actually, at this point, uh, we don't. Uh, we had, when I say we, I'm talking about uh, Phil Racino and myself had a guest on uh, about this, about splitting the sky and his legacy, uh, just last night um, on the radio show called We Cannot Be Silent. And the guest's name is Joshua. Uh, Blockany, that's B-L-A-K-E-N-E-Y, or Blockany. I hope I'm pronouncing Joshua. Yeah, Blockany, he's been on the show before. He's a Canadian activist. In fact, he might be calling in today if we're lucky. But uh, So what did he say? If, if he's not here, let's he, recap he was, that. He was saying, and I'm sure he, he'll reiterate this, he was saying that uh, the uh, there will be, as a result of pushing very hard, some kind of uh, investigation at... And to uh, uh, splitting the skies, Dr. was uh, um, death. I think it's extremely important at this point in time. We, you know, we just we just don't know. What we do know is that uh, the brother is no longer with us, uh, and we do know, you know, what he has done and how important it is. And I think it is extremely important to find out what the cause of that death of, of his passing on actually was. We mm-hmm. we have to question when any activist goes down, especially one that tries to arrest United States presidents. Uh, that that mm-hmm. isn't something I think that Obama wants to go through. And and so I guess that would bring us to to splitting the sky in his opinions of Obama because I hadn't had him on uh, for quite some time. He'd been on the show many times, a good friend of ours, but for whatever reason we didn't have him on. What was he saying about the uh, comparisons to Obama to Obusha? I mean George Bush. Absolutely the same thing that he had to say about Bush. This is one of the things that I respect so much about uh, Splitting the Sky and others like him. This brother pulled no punches. You understand? He pulled no punches, Jack. Uh, he was not uh, a hypocrite, all right? He, uh, he called it like it really, really was, like he really, really saw it, like it really, really is. In other words... Uh, he knew, and he made it clear, that Barack Obama is also a war criminal. Uh, he made it clear that the policies that began uh, under G.W. Bush were not only uh, uh, continued, but in fact broadened by, by this uh, 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 
yeah. person Barack H. Obama. I'm just going to just leave it like that. This is a radio program. So let me just say that uh, he was con- he was consistent. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, splitting the, co- the sky was, was, was consistent. He was not a hypocrite like, like so much of the leadership of the so-called left, and right for that matter. But I come out of the left, so I'm going to call it as I see it, too. Uh, he, and as, as was Russell Means, another brother that we, we lost. We just lost, you know, yeah. A while back. You know, uh, they, these brothers, these people were consistent, and that's why, to a large extent, they were shunned by not only what I call the corporate stream media, but also by the so-called progressives, the so-called leftists, the leadership of these, these organizations, because they could not handle or refuse to handle the fact that uh, what Splitting the Sky and Russell and others of us, Russell means and others of us, you, Jack, too, have been saying, including you, and you're a great program, they, 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 they don't want to hear it. They don't want to handle it. They, so getting back to splitting the sky, yes, he continued uh, to, to, to wage the same struggle, the same uh, uh, standards of, of accountability and honesty uh, with respect to this Barack Obama uh, bummer creature and I say that with great sadness, being a black American myself. It saddens me. But I've got to say it like it is. We have a warmongering, murdering, NDAA-signing, drone missile, I mean, the list goes on, uh, a killless president who is, has, has taken what Bush has done to... It, Obama is Bush on steroids, okay? That's what he is, a caramel-colored... Bush on steroids, and we need to understand that, and Splitting the Sky clearly, clearly understood that. We will continue to keep our eye on developments in this case, but regardless of how Splitting the Sky died, unfortunately, he is now gone, and he has passed away. And thus, we are left in this spot on March 22nd of 2013, in a poorer spot than we were just a few days before. But, once again, when we are confronted with the tragic loss of such a powerful and articulate speaker for truth, we can look at it in one of two ways. Either that it is a loss and that now we are all slightly poorer for it, or that we have been enriched by his time on this planet, and that the only way that that time is nullified or made useless is that if his contribution to the search for truth and justice is forgotten. And so it is that we are here memorializing his contributions to the the tireless search for truth that continues to go on. And once again, one uh, voice after another can be silenced, but one after another will continue to rise up, inspired by those who went before. We do stand on the shoulders of giants, and we do see further than we ever have before because of it. And so it is that we cannot simply take Splitting the Sky's loss as the end of this story, but hopefully of the beginning of a new chapter in which truth and justice and accountability is finally reached. That's it for today. Once again, I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Stay.